Welcome to Profiles. I'm Steve Sanders. The final chapters of the political career of Mike Pence, the former Indiana congressman, governor, and now vice president of the United States, have yet to be written. But a new book about Pence's life and career takes us up to the moment he took the oath of office alongside Donald Trump. This first full biography of Mike Pence gives us a rich and detailed insight into the places, people, and politics that shaped the current vice president during the life he spent here in Indiana. The book, titled Pence, The Path to Power, was published in August 2018 by Red Lightning Books, an imprint of the Indiana University Press. And the author, Andrea Neal, is our guest today on Profiles. Andrea Neal, welcome to Profiles. Thank you so much. Mike Pence was obviously a longtime and very familiar figure in Indiana politics, familiar to many of our listeners. In the course of writing this biography, what did you learn or come to understand about Pence that most surprised you or that you think would come as a surprise to most people? Probably two things. One is that he was a student of conservatism before he became a conservative. I think we have an image or a stereotype of him as an evangelical Christian, which he is. Mm -hmm. I think few people are aware that he spent quite a few years studying conservative philosophy. He's often cited Russell Kirk's The Conservative Mind as a book that is most influential, second to the Bible. He was a student of G.M. Curtis at Hanover and William Harvey at IU School of Law, both sort of titans of libertarian or conservative thought, limited government philosophy. And so he really went through an intellectual process to reach the conclusion that he was at heart a conservative. So that may surprise some. It surprised me. Mm -hmm. And secondly, that his friends to a person say he is a funny guy. Mm -hmm. And that is not a side of him we have seen much, certainly not since he became vice president. Mm -hmm. But they told me numerous stories of falling on the floor in laughter because of his impressions or Rye jokes. If he's funny, he's keeping that to himself, at least during his vice presidency. Your book follows Mike Pence from his boyhood in Columbus, Indiana, through law school and marriage, his first unsuccessful run for Congress, his subsequent successful run and time in Washington, D.C., his time as governor, and it really ends with his swearing in as vice president. In your day job, you teach history to eighth graders at St. Richard's Episcopal School in Indianapolis. How do you see this biography that you've just published fitting into the larger story that history will write about Mike Pence? Why did you write this book now? First off, I wrote it because Indiana University Press called me and asked me if I'd be interested in doing this. Mm -hmm. And it never would have occurred to me in a million years had it not been suggested, mm -hmm. because how do you write a biography of someone who's still making news. That sounded extremely challenging. But then I thought, what a privilege to be able to write a biography of someone who will be remembered by history. So this is what I would consider sort of the Hoosier story. Mike Pence's life through the lens of mostly Hoosiers, friends who knew him best, staff people who knew him best, and really not the national story. I think that that is yet to be written. We see it unfolding in some ways, but I felt that if I followed his life story up to taking the oath of office, one, it would stand the test of time. I want this to be a book that the future historians can rely on when they write the final history of Mike Pence. And you write in the preface to the book, you describe how this project really sort of fell into your lap. You're 
driving to uh, Chicago, right. I think, to see Hamilton. Right. And an editor from the IU Press calls and says, would you like to write a book about a famous Hoosier? And lots of things went through yes, your mind. Right. And you were a little surprised when they said Mike Pence. Yes, for, for the very reason I just stated. I mean, I thought that that created challenges that would be difficult for me. So Mike Pence is actually the sixth man from Indiana in history to serve in the role as vice president of the United States. And we're all in many ways shaped by our upbringings. You say in the book that you're viewing Pence through a distinctly Hoosier lens. And you're someone who I think has a keen sense of the history of the state. Is there something distinctively Indiana, distinctively Hoosier, that Mike Pence brings to this role as vice president? Are there ways that his Indiana upbringing shaped him that are significant now as he carries out these responsibilities on the national level? Well, I think the age-old question for us in Indiana is, what is a Hoosier exactly? And I don't know if people would agree that Mike Pence is the quintessential Hoosier, but he's typical in, in a lot of ways. He's a born Hoosier. He was born in Columbus, Indiana. He's noted for saying that he could see a cornfield view from his kitchen window. I drove to his first ranch home in Columbus, and indeed he could have seen a cornfield from his kitchen window. Although Columbus is now known as a rather progressive place, I think 1960s Columbus is sort of almost stereotypical 1950s Indiana. He had a very traditional upbringing with a stay-at-home mother and a working father, and they went to church every Sunday. And although the family leaned Democratic, Kennedy Democrat, mm -hmm. In fact, I would say they were conservative in the sense that the heartland is a more conservative place. Mm -hmm. They didn't travel all over the world all of the time. They spent most of their days and weekends in Columbus, Indiana. He went to public high school, like most Hoosiers, stayed in Indiana for college. In many of his campaigns, he looked for sort of Hoosier themes. I talk about the gubernatorial race where he and Karen walk hand in hand past a field of high corn. So I guess to me, being a Hoosier is being normal, mm -hmm. having a normal upbringing. And certainly his was very traditional and normal. You spoke with some 50 people for this book, but Pence himself did not talk to you. Why do you think he declined to be interviewed? So that was a great disappointment because I felt that I would get an interview from him. I talked early in the process to his representatives and was so hopeful that I would get an interview that the original manuscript had lots of blank spaces and questions and highlighting for what I hoped he would fill in. And I have several theories because the answer I got from his press secretary was that he had just made the decision not to participate in profile books. Mm -hmm. My take on it is twofold. One, he really has tried to play this subordinate, loyal foot soldier role to Donald Trump and never wants to look like he's trying to steal the limelight. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I think he wanted to be in a position that if a book were to come out that they felt were unfair, that he would be able to distance himself from it should that occur. I might note that when the prospects of an interview were looking good early, and I was encouraged, I prepared 60 questions for him that I even said that I would be willing to submit in writing. In the meantime, the Michael Wolff book came out, mm -hmm. an article so the, in... The sort of tell-all about the Trump White House yes, its early days. Yes, which caused quite a dust-up, mm -hmm. not only in the White House, but among the Pence people. I remember I was talking to Bill Smith, his former chief of staff, the day that story broke, and he looked at me and he said, hmm, it's not looking quite so mm -hmm. positive for an interview. 
What I did get were interviews with his best friends mm-hmm. and his two chiefs of staff and people who could tell me stories going all the way back to high school. So I felt comfortable that I knew who Mike Pence was by the time the interviews were done. Mm. Here in Indiana, you yourself have moved in some of the same conservative political circles as Mike Pence. You're currently an adjunct scholar with the Indiana Policy Review Foundation, a conservative think tank that Pence once headed up, actually, here in Indiana. Did you know Pence professionally or socially? I actually would say I don't know him well at all in that sense. I'm an observer of Mike Pence for 30 years. When I looked at old clippings about him, I found a few that I had written when I was a journalist myself, mostly when I was at the editorial pages of the Indy Star. I did not know him at the Indiana Policy Review because I was off doing something else at that time. I was certainly familiar with his political career, and he was familiar with my writing. I served for two years on the State Board of Education when he was governor, and he personally called me to his office and asked if I would consider that. So we had some interpersonal connections, but otherwise, no, I I really didn't know him other than as a journalist and a 30-year observer. What's it like to write someone's biography? It's always seemed to me that the sheer volume of notes and documents and news clippings and interview transcripts that you'd need to organize would just be overwhelming. So (laughs) how long did this take and how did you approach this task to get it done? I wish I'd had more time. I was on a 10-month contract and I was working at teaching during most of that time. So I approached it the same way I teach my eighth graders how to write a 10-page Indiana history term paper. I started with three-by-five cards, and I just started taking notes from newspaper articles. And there was a wealth of newspaper material, because if you think back to the 1990s, there were still many newspaper outlets still with political reporters assigned to all of the congressional districts, and I was able to find multiple accounts of the same event. So I was able to do a lot of source checking and cross checking and got a lot of rich material from newspapers. Indianapolis Star, Columbus Republic, Franklin Daily Journal, Muncie Star Press, many of the papers that were in the congressional districts where we either ran for office or that he represented. So I started with that. And I went as chronologically as I could. The book is mostly organized chronologically. And I started scheduling interviews, looking for names from people from his past, from his high school days, college, just started scheduling them and knew that I couldn't interview 100 people because I didn't have time, but sort of set a, a goal of 50, which I reached and put the interviews in really thick legal pads and went through and highlighted them so the headings would match my three-by-five cards. Mm -hmm. And then I did what I tell my eighth graders to do. I say, take all those three-by-five cards and go down to your basement and spread them out, and the book will write itself. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, it did. Do you take all your notes by hand when you interview somebody? Did you record any of these things? I only recorded a few. I, I knew that the time required to transcribe and re-listen to interviews was not possible with this 10-month contract. For example, I interviewed Governor Holcomb. I taped that interview. The people that I would call really sort of um, prize interview subjects, I thought it would be wise to have those on tape. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, it was hand notes. Is there anyone else significant that you would have liked to have talked to who declined to participate? You say in the book most people uh, very happily responded to your requests for interviews. The folks who declined were current staff people, and I don't know if they were under instructions to decline, but for example, 
Tom Rose, who currently works for President Trump's administration, known Pence forever, longtime conservative, and uh, very active in shaping Donald Trump's Israeli policy. That was somebody I would have liked to have interviewed. Didn't get to talk to him. I tried my best to contact Kellyanne Conway only because I knew she'd been so important as a pollster for Pence and uh, was not able to reach her. There were a, a few people in Congress I had hoped to talk to, but I quickly concluded that the time spent trying to get interviews mm-hmm. with some of the national people would be better spent talking to multiple yeah. Hoosiers. What about people back here who might have known him in high school or college or growing up or something like that? Were people very forthcoming? And I can't think of anyone you? local who declined. I, it took me a while to get GM Curtis to agree to an interview. That's the Hanover professor mm-hmm. who's, I think he's about 80 now. And if you've ever met GM, he's kind of a force of nature. And I think that he was a little skeptical of anyone writing a history book in 10 months mm-hmm. and didn't think it sounded too legit because he's a historian of the mm-hmm. of the old school three to five years kind of sort. But I did finally get to talk to him and it was a wonderfully rich experience. Mm-hmm. I arrived at his house and he's playing opera. And I was very pleased to talk to John Gregg, who... Mm-hmm ran against Pence for governor, mm-hmm. obviously, in 2012 and was in the process of running against him again in 2016. Mm-hmm. John Gregg was reluctant. He said, I don't want to be part of a puff piece or a hatchet job. Mm-hmm. And I said, neither do I. And he consented. And I'm told that he thought that the part of the book where he plays a prominent mm-hmm. part was very fair and accurate. So mm-hmm. that pleased me. If you're just joining us, this is Profiles. I'm Steve Sanders. We're talking with Andrea Neal, a teacher and a former journalist who is the author of a new biography of Vice President and longtime Hoosier Mike Pence called Pence, The Path to Power. Andrea, for the book, as we said, you interviewed about 50 people, but you also have written both in the book and in some other things you've written about this process, that you decided to only use on the record for attribution sources, no one speaking anonymously. Why did you make that decision? I've really watched with dismay as journalists have relied more and more on anonymous sourcing, which I think leads not only to inaccuracy, but distortion. And recalling my own years as a journalist, both for UPI and the Indy Star, it was a rare exception that an anonymous source was acceptable. And you had to justify and justify to use an anonymous source. And I didn't think that would be needed. And I'll tell you, in using national publications as sources for the book, I came across many errors when anonymous sourcing was used. And just one quick example was after Pence was chosen, there was a national piece about how the flat tire story that kept Donald Trump in Indianapolis an extra night that allowed Mike Pence to woo him an extra night Mm -hmm. uh, was actually all a creation of Paul Manafort. That there was a flat tire on the president's plane? It was on candidate Trump's plane. He came in for a rally and a fundraiser. And required him to stay over extra Required him to stay overnight. The national report was that Paul Manafort had made that up and it wasn't true. And that this was because Manafort was backing Pence and he thought an extra night would seal the deal. I interviewed the motorcade driver who reported the flat tire to the Secret Service. That kind of unreliability, I think, 
all journalists should avoid, but I certainly think someone who wants to be taken seriously as a historian Mm -hmm. should avoid. And I want this book to be a book that future historians can use. Were there ever any times in your interviews with people where they said, now, I could tell you this, but you can't attribute it to me? Was there anything you felt that would have been valuable in the way of an insight or information that you had to sacrifice by taking that very principled stance? Actually, no, because I didn't pursue those lines of questioning where I knew people were not willing to go. The only deal I made was that Jim Adderholt, his former gubernatorial chief of staff, had a couple of stories he wanted to tell me, but he didn't want me to reveal them until the book was actually published. I was happy to make that deal. How do you do that? Well, he wanted people to find out the information when they read the book, not before. And so, for example, and I think this is the big scoop of the book, was that even though Mike Pence's name didn't come into the public's consciousness until July, right before the Republican National Convention, when Trump proposed him to be his vice president, that actually Pence had first heard from Trump in early June. Hmm. So a full month went by before Pence's name emerged. And that's a wonderful little tidbit I got Mm -hmm. from Jim Adderholt. So I got lots of good little tidbits from people who knew him well. A lot of his friends, I think, wanted to be part of setting the historic record straight, and they Mm -hmm. were actually pretty eager to talk to me for that reason. So there were a couple of stories that I would have liked to have brought into the book that I felt were not legit, but if you were to Google them, you can immediately find them. So one of those For example, here I am talking about it, even though I didn't want to put it in the book, was that after the Access Hollywood uh, scandal... Donald Trump talking very graphically about his behavior toward women and was caught on tape. Yes, there was a very strong rumor that Pence met with or at least communicated with Condoleezza Rice, and the two of them were willing to step up with Mm -hmm. Pence replacing Trump on the ticket and Rice as the vice presidential candidate. A wonderfully intriguing story that would substantiate a lot of people's theories about Mike Pence, which Mm -hmm. is that he is nothing but ambitious, but simply zero confirmation anywhere of that Mm -hmm. story. So I decided not to touch it. Now, what I did know was that the record showed that Mike Pence removed himself from the campaign trail for two Mm -hmm. days, spent a lot of time in prayer and thought, as he's wont to do, and told Donald Trump he thought he should apologize. Mm -hmm. So that was on the record, that I could get, but not the other more salacious story. And maybe along the same lines, some biographers, I think, attempt to really get inside the heads of their subjects. They speculate about their subjects' motivations and inner demons. They draw subjective conclusions about actions or decisions or events that they're narrating in their book. You largely avoid that approach in the book. It seems much more a piece of very solidly reported journalism written by a narrator who wants to remain objective. Was that a conscious decision about how to approach this project? Very much so. And unfortunately, because of that, I there were a few issues in which I didn't get inside his head. The one thing I really wanted to be able to tell readers was what prompted his religious shift from Catholicism to a more evangelical Protestant faith. And there's lots of speculation, but I never really nailed that down. And that was one of the questions that was at the top of my list for him, should I have gotten an interview. But what I 
had people who knew him saying was that he felt drawn to a more personal relationship and a less ritualistic faith. Other people speculated that perhaps there was an ambition there, that he knew that the evangelical church might be a good foundation for a future political career. But the reason I couldn't speculate in that direction is because he went through his born-again moment while he was still at Hanover before he'd Mm -hmm. become a conservative. And so that explanation didn't seem to make sense. So rather than speculate and be wrong, I think it's always best to not speculate and let the reader Mm -hmm. make conclusions and find out maybe down the road when more historians will have more access perhaps to him. I'm sure he'll probably have memoirs or write his own autobiography someday, and maybe some Mm -hmm. of these unanswered questions will be answered. Pence was not a political conservative or even a Republican when he went off to Hanover College at age 18 or whatever he would have been. And you write that he had actually chosen Hanover in large part because he had been there for a basketball camp and really liked the campus. So how was Mike Pence's political philosophy as we know it today shaped, including by the things he read and the Mm -hmm. professors who were influential over him at Hanover? How did it begin to emerge? Yeah. Well, I think all of us can relate to having sort of high school era political views and then changing as we go to college and beyond. And I think that's exactly what happened. His family was mostly what you would describe as Irish Catholic with democratic leanings. And many people in the Pence family were strong John F. Kennedy supporters. Pence tells the story of keeping a time capsule with clippings about John F. Kennedy and the assassination and watching the funeral on TV. And he just had a, a, I would say, sort of an adolescence political enthusiasm Mm -hmm. for John F. Kennedy. And Kennedy and his brother Bobby Kennedy were these sort of romantic figures that did capture the imagination of a lot of young people at that time. Yes, and Pence is born in 1959, so really he's just becoming of bare political consciousness, if you Mm -hmm. think about it, when Kennedy's president. So it's probably more what he hears in his household that Mm -hmm. influences him than what he actually knows about John F. Kennedy. But he goes to Hanover, describes himself as a Democrat, casts his first vote for president in 1980 for Jimmy Carter. And it's about the same time that he enrolls as a senior in G.M. Curtis's class on constitutional history and law, Mm -hmm. a two-semester course. And for the first time, Mike Pence starts reading the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Federalist Papers, many of the founding fathers' writings, Mm -hmm. and it really lights a fire. And most of us who studied the Constitution in that era can relate to that. Mm -hmm. And the professor was compelling in his presentation and also very demanding and rigorous in his expectations. Seniors who were history majors at Hanover had to write thesis papers, and because he was becoming extremely interested in religion and in politics, Pence decides to write his senior thesis paper on the religious expressions of Abraham Lincoln, trying to sort of combine his interests of religion and politics in one. And I don't think it made the book, but uh, Professor Curtis and Pence's Hanover buddy, Jay Steger, talk about how his original proposal Uh, Professor Curtis sort of thought it was very weak and poorly done, and and only after much massaging was it good enough to submit for grading. And I did read the thesis, and it was quite interesting, Mm -hmm. trying to rectify this image of a president who's not known for having faith and yet Mm -hmm. presiding over the Civil War. So that was very influential. But I think where Curtis really made the impact on Pence was 
After he graduated, Pence stayed at Hanover for two years as an admissions officer, and that's when he started socializing with Professor Curtis. Mm -hmm. So things that Curtis would never have said in the classroom, they start debating in the living room over a cold beer. And this is where Pence is challenged Mm -hmm. and stimulated and starts thinking about, what do I really believe? The things you've described, sort of reading the classics, the great texts of American democracy, wouldn't in itself point someone necessarily toward being a liberal or being a conservative. So is there something about Professor Curtis's own approach to this material or his own writings? Did he shape Pence in a way that not only gave him an appreciation for these great foundational texts, but also informed the kind of political conservative he would become? Yeah, and I think Professor Curtis might describe himself as more libertarian, but it would be the concerns that many of the founders and framers shared about tyrannical government and what happens when government becomes too large and too intrusive and abuse of power and the best government is limited government and individual rights and liberties. And so I think free market economics and those sort of get government out of the way thinking would have been what he would have debated with Professor Curtis. So what were you able to learn or conclude? You say that his approach to religion, or at least his early religious consciousness, also sort of took hold at this time in college at Hanover. What were the origins of that, as best as you can tell? Uh, And this is where perhaps I remain a little perplexed by some of the shifts that we see in his faith life. From Catholicism to evangelical Christianity. Yes, so he was a very um, good Catholic boy, altar boy, and faith in action, and community service, and volunteer. Um, Now, where I think some of his conservative social views had their root was in his Catholicism in terms of he's always been anti-abortion, always had a pro-life view, and I think that took root as part of the Catholic Church. Some of his attitudes about traditional marriage may have taken root in the Catholic Church. He says he was not terribly interested in religion as a high school student, went to Hanover and just decided to try out an extracurricular activity called Vespers, saw a girl who was really cute, decided to go back, and that the message began to plant itself. He had some fraternity brothers who were very religious, one who went on to become a prominent pastor in Indianapolis. And he tells the story of this would have been... um, I believe uh, senior year, he goes to a Christian music festival in Kentucky called Mm -hmm. Ichthyus and answers an altar call. And he himself says it wasn't that he became a Christian at that moment, but he, he felt something stirring within. I mean, I think of John Wesley, my heart was strangely warmed. He was never a Methodist, but that seems to be the kind of experience he had. His heart was strangely warmed in a way that Catholicism had not accomplished. If you're just joining us, this is Profiles on WFIU. I'm Steve Sanders. We're talking with Andrea Neal, the author of a new biography of former Hoosier congressman and governor and current vice president, Mike Pence. Andrea, one of the things as we proceed on Mike Pence's educational journey, one of the things I learned in your book that I hadn't known was that in law school, at the IU Law School in Indianapolis, Mike Pence drew a comic strip for the student newspaper. You write that the main character of the strip, Mr. Daze, D-A-Z-E, 
served as Pence's more insecure alter ego. So what insights do these strips reveal about the psyche of Mike Pence? Uh, Insecurity about his ability to stand up to some of these rock stars of the law school. Mr. Days was always uh, in fear of saying the wrong thing or having the wrong answer. And uh, Mr. Days looked an awful lot like Mike Pence. He was pretty decent at caricatures. He's not going to become an editorial cartoonist Mm -hmm. anytime soon. But he liked to try and have the professor saying something kind of cutting. And then Mr. Days would be sweating. And you could see the sweat coming out of Mr. Days' brow. So his sense of humor certainly Mm -hmm. came out by this. He never really liked law school. And he Mm -hmm. was quoted at one point saying that he wouldn't wish it on a dog. When he was asked about that quote sometime later, he kind of peddled it back. Mm -hmm. But he didn't have a lot of interest in practicing law, and I think law school taught him that. I think what he liked about law school was the debating, Mm -hmm. the arguing, and seeking further insight into constitutional law and civil procedure. Mm -hmm. I don't think he liked torts. He made a lot of fun of the torts professor. And torts is the body of law about personal injury, essentially. So far as you know, is Pence still a doodler? Is he one of these people who sits in meetings and draws funny pictures? Well, he was still are, are drawing we going to see caricatures governor. of Donald Trump oh, that he's you done love someday? that. Yeah, I don't know if he still does. But as governor, he still was. I don't know if you remember this, but he and Karen Pence would have a fundraiser, I think, for Riley Hospital every year. And he would put his own uh, caricature on pumpkins and sell them as a fundraiser. So he, he does like caricaturing. Just that little bit of um, the way you described his own apparent sort of self-reflection in that comic strip. Is Mike Pence what we might call a pleaser? Is he somebody who sort of needs to be a little bit self-deprecating and wants other people to like him? You know what? I think that may be what's so Hoosier about him. If we look at Benjamin Harrison, Indiana's only president, he was the same way, always trying to move the spotlight off of him. I don't think he would ever completely forsake principle to please. But he was not an A-plus student. Many of his achievements he's gotten through personality. And I think that, you know, another who's your thing. He's a genuinely nice guy who always liked the grip and grin of the campaign trail. He likes people. He likes to talk to people. I've been told that he remembers people that he met many, many years ago, and he can recognize people from across the room and go straight to them. So it's sort of Clinton-esque mm-hmm. almost in that way. An extrovert, not an introvert? I think, boy, he doesn't look like an extrovert right now because Mm -hmm. he's so withdrawn and has kind of isolated himself, certainly from the news media, but someone who naturally likes people Mm -hmm. and talking to people. You mentioned that Mike Pence is good with people and likes people. Who have been some of the most important, maybe three or four most important people in your judgment over the years who have shaped who Mike Pence has become today, both personally and professionally. Certainly his college professor, Professor Curtis, would be one, but there must be others. At law school, he was very much mentored by Professor William Harvey, who was the former dean of the law school in Indianapolis. And he learned from Professor Harvey a little bit about the stresses of political life. Harvey had been nominated by President Reagan for a seat on the 7th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. And that nomination ended up being withdrawn. This was sort of one of those debates over, is Harvey an ideological extremist? Very much a harbinger of the sorts of political Mm -hmm. debates we're seeing now. And 
Professor Harvey handled it with such grace and class, and Pence said that he learned a great deal about how to operate in public life by watching the example of Professor Harvey. In terms of political examples, he was uh, certainly modeled himself in some ways as a conservative talk show host after Rush Limbaugh. He used to call himself Limbaugh Light or Limbaugh on decaf. And people in politics, he was a huge aficionado of Newt Gingrich for a very long time and tried to build some of his political positions when he was in Congress on the Contract for America positions that the Gingrich Revolution had espoused. I would say that Ronald Reagan himself was one of the biggest influences. Pence has a photograph of him meeting Ronald Reagan when Pence was still young, but Pence would probably describe himself as a Reagan conservative, mm-hmm. and he was a, pretty much espoused many of the same positions that Ronald Reagan did. Mm-hmm. Pence is known for sort of this aw shucks personal style, and like many vice presidents, he's occasionally been the target of spoof and ridicule. But you write that he has taken what you call a calculated approach to his political career. Do people tend to underestimate Mike Pence? Well, I think that evidence one is nobody thought Donald Trump and Mike Pence were going to win election in 2016. And it's my personal opinion that Donald Trump probably wouldn't have won without Mike Pence on the ticket. Mike Pence was able to solidify evangelical support for Trump. And one way he did that was by appealing to that conservative base and telling them, if Donald Trump is elected president, you will get originalist, strict constructionist judges on the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And that is a litmus test, as we know, for many evangelical Christians. Mm -hmm. So Pence himself, I think, helped Donald Trump become president of the United States. But there are many other times that he's been written off. In 1990, he had what many have described as one of the most negative political campaigns in Indiana Mm -hmm. history. This was when he ran against Phil Sharp, second time, second defeat to Phil Sharp running for Congress. And he and his staff resorted to some pretty ugly campaign techniques. And people said he's toast Mm -hmm. after that. He wrote uh, famously something called Confessions of a Negative Campaigner, worked for a few years for the think tank, Indiana Policy Review, and then reinvented himself as a conservative radio talk show host. And lo and behold, 2000, the very same seat that had once belonged to Phil Sharp opened up and he becomes congressman. Mm -hmm. And then again, when he was governor, probably the biggest controversy of his time in office was over the Religious Freedom Mm -hmm. Restoration Act, RIFRA, which was interpreted by some as a tool to discriminate against gays. Mm -hmm. He signed the bill into law. I'm sure most people remember that many companies and others threatened sanctions against Indiana because of concerns that this RIFRA law would alienate um, gays and -hmm. and perhaps send some companies packing, Mm -hmm. and it was rewritten. Didn't make either conservatives or liberal happy, Mm -hmm. but it was rewritten nonetheless. Some said his political career is over. He's toast. He's not even going to win re-election as governor, people were saying, and yet here he is, vice president. So I I think he's a lot more politically astute than many people realize. I want to talk with you a little bit about the RIFRA episode, which many people would agree was the most controversial period of his time as governor. But just for a minute to not leave the point about the role that Pence played as part of the ticket as really the ambassador to social and religious conservatives in the not too distant past, Indiana also produced another vice president in former Senator Dan Quayle, who was chosen by the man at the top of that ticket, George Bush Sr., sort of for many of the same reasons as a sort of ambassador to that wing of the party, which has only gotten more powerful and more influential since then. Are there any parallels between Quayle and Pence that you see? Is it just a coincidence that 
two such men would come from Indiana. Well, not at all. In fact, I think the wonderful Indiana University historian, James Madison, is quoted in my book as saying that most Indiana vice presidents are picked for the same reason, and that is they provide some balance to a ticket that wouldn't otherwise be there, and the calculus is made that that balance is needed to help the president. So in the case of Dan Quayle, Everyone was shocked when he was chosen. I remember that moment myself because the rumor had gotten out that he was looking at an Indiana senator, and I naturally thought, well, Senator Richard Luger would be Mm -hmm. the obvious pick. So the selection of Quayle was a surprise and somewhat controversial, and Quayle immediately ended up getting the ticket into trouble. There was debate over his service in the National Guard, and there were a variety of issues. He was uh, misspelled potato and all sorts of jokes made about him, which created some uh, uh, unfavorable publicity for the Mm -hmm. ticket, but not well-known. Mm-hmm. really, beyond Indiana, not someone who had been previously mentioned. So I would say that about Mike Pence, despite the fact Pence had been looking at running for president since maybe 2005, he was not well known. Mm-hmm. And if you looked at the polls that were taken for potential presidential candidates around 2010, 2011, his name really didn't show up on anybody's list except evangelical Christians. So both sort of were uh, dark horses who came out of nowhere. Both of them had a strong voter base and brought to the ticket things the candidate might not have had. So let's talk about the RIFRA controversy. Uh, Critics of Vice President Pence have said that the intent of the law was to give businesses a right not to serve gay and lesbian customers. Supporters of the RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, said it only provided enhanced review in the courts for laws that burdened religious beliefs. You devote a chapter in your book to a matter-of-fact account of the RIFRA controversy, but I'm wondering what lessons you think we should draw from the way Pence handled it. Matt Tully, who's a political columnist for the Indianapolis Star, where you once served as the editorial page editor, wrote the following during that time, and I just want to get your reaction to it. Tully writes, Pence was never meant to be a governor. A partisan and dysfunctional Congress that lives on bright line divisions was his home for 12 years, and that's where he belongs, in a place where a person can rise high by talking well and digging in and not really doing much. Pence thrived while representing a gerrymandered congressional district, one where he could safely walk an ideological line, live in a partisan bubble. He's failed to understand that a governor's job is to represent a much more diverse state. Obviously, some tough words. Is there anything there that is a fair analysis of Pence's strengths and weaknesses as a political office holder, sort of the difference in temperament between being a legislator and an executive. Yeah, very fair analysis. And I think that Pence would probably agree with it, too. I I think that the time he spent in Congress, he became known for dissenting, not just against what the Democrats were doing, but his he own stood Republican up to his own party, party all yeah. the time. And he was often criticized because he never got a bill through Congress. He'd be the first to tell you, I don't want bills getting through Congress. I believe in limited government. My job is to stop bills from becoming law, not add to the already excessive amount of laws and regulations on the book. And he thrived in that, and he was good at it, too, because Mm -hmm. he can disagree without being disagreeable. Mm -hmm. I think when he became governor, he was listening to all of his political advisors, all of whom were still seeing him as a potential presidential candidate, and they said, don't cause controversy. But, you know, that is not good advice for someone who's heading a state Mm -hmm. and who's going to have all sorts of issues come at him, unexpected and otherwise. 
Rifra was unexpected. That was not on his agenda. Mm-hmm. He did he, not endorse it. In he's advance. in many ways gotten blamed for it as if it were his yeah. idea. Yeah. But my recollection is it was really sponsored by some social conservative legislators and eventually landed on his desk and he embraced it. But it wasn't his idea originally. And he himself talks about how it is not the executive's job to make policy. He has always viewed the governor as deferring to the legislative branch. The Indiana governor is not particularly powerful constitutionally, doesn't have any uh, line item power to veto spending or things like that. But he did support Riffer on principle. And so once he put his name on that law, he stood by it and he defended it as best he could. Mm -hmm. But there were other times when I think his lack of executive talent at the state level showed itself. He Such as? Well, the, the there was quite a controversy over his proposal to create a state-run news agency mm-hmm. called Just In. Well, I think the intent, or at least so I was told by the people I interviewed, was in an era when there are fewer newspapers and it's harder for people to get information about daily government services, the intent was to create a one-stop shopping center that would have information about the license branch system or the child welfare or uh, aid to families with needy children, et cetera, et cetera. But because he was not paying attention to what was going on in the office closely enough to realize as they were rolling out this proposal that it did indeed look like a state-run news agency that was going to be designed to promote Mike Pence and Mike Pence's views. And so while that may not have been the intent, the early documentation of this idea was certain to blow up in his face. Mm -hmm. And he didn't predict that. He didn't see that coming. We've talked a fair amount about Mike Pence's religious faith. If people know one thing about him, it probably is his identity as a conservative Christian. He's famously described himself as a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order. At several points in the book, you describe how Pence's faith has manifested itself both privately and publicly. But I'm wondering if you've drawn larger conclusions. How has religion shaped Pence's political career and the decisions he's made along the way? There's no question that he takes prayer seriously and that he prays before all major decisions. And I was told that over and over and over again, whether they're personnel decisions or policy decisions. He has never not been in a covenant group or Bible study. This is a part of his daily discipline. And as I ask his friends, what does that mean for his politics? And they said, well, he's not praying for answers. He's praying for peace. He's praying for a shield of protection from critics. I think it's something that's hard for people who don't know the evangelical world to really understand, but I've read accounts of him in which he's been alleged to say that God told him to run for president, and that's such an oversimplification. And and the the former White House aide who has left Omarosa, I think, was quoted as saying, Pence thinks God talks to him. Well, he would probably say that that's what prayer is, conversation with God. So he's deeply influenced just in his day-to-day life by his prayer life and the reading of Scripture, and so I think one that gives him a peacefulness about whatever he's doing. He, as a general rule, believes in limited government, but I think critics would accurately say, well, then why does he think Roe v. Wade should be overturned? Or why does he think gay marriage was not 
appropriate. Because those represent sort of government preventing people from doing things that they feel are part of their natural rights. Yes. And I uh, so I think my answer to that is on the abortion. I think it's very clear that starting with his upbringing as a Catholic and continuing on to his reading of Scripture, that he believes the fetus is sacred life worthy of protection. And I think he would argue that he is simply advocating that the natural rights of life, liberty, and property that accrue to all people by virtue of their humanity also occur to an unborn baby. And so I think that is a position, while rooted in his faith, he also has a political philosophical uh, behind it. You know, I think that if you ask him about his position on gay marriage, you have to go back to what he was saying during the Riffer controversy and during the debate over uh, amending Indiana's constitution, Mm -hmm. which preceded Riffer to define marriages between a man and a woman. I think he would say 2,000 years of tradition teach us that that's what marriage is, that it's an institution designed to raise children in the the healthiest possible way and, and just strongly held beliefs that are both cultural and religious and political and I mean, I I think that as a general rule, he is true to the keep government out philosophy, but no question his religious beliefs influence him. Pence has gotten a certain amount of ridicule for practicing what he has referred to, I think, as the Billy Graham rule. That is, he will never dine alone with another woman who is not his wife. As you understand it, is that really a religious principle? He believes that all people are so fallible and subject to temptation, he can't allow himself to that. I thought I had read that, no, that really started as just a more an image thing. He didn't want to be seen with someone who wasn't his wife because he worried people would start talking and gossiping about it. Well, and you know, that's what people do in Washington. I think it's becoming uh, maybe a little less common now because we have a new cultural understanding of what's appropriate at cocktail parties and other uh, K Street activities in Washington, D.C. This is where he's sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't, because people have mocked this position, saying it's unrealistic in an era in which women are present in every aspect of life and that it shows that he, yeah, he thinks he can't resist temptation. What he's trying to do is avoid any possibility of false impressions or open any door to false accusations. And, you know, we've seen countless times in the news lately these kinds of incidents. And I did talk quite at length with his his uh, deep friend and former chief of staff, Bill Smith, about this. And he says, this is not a rule Mike Pence thinks should be imposed on everyone. This is a rule he and his wife decided made sense when they moved to Washington. The Washington lifestyle is different from the Indiana lifestyle, and this is a shield of protection for his marriage and any public impressions that could occur. And then the other part of the rule is he would take his wife with him to events where alcohol was served. Again, if there are people with uh, who've had too much to drink mm-hmm. with flawed memories or can't remember an event... There will be at least two people, Mike Pence and Karen Pence, who haven't had a drop to drink and who know exactly what went on on these parties. And I think history may not make fun of him on this point. But this is all really more about preserving his image and avoiding false accusations, not out of some sense of, uh, you know, to quote Jimmy Carter, you know, I've sinned in my heart, I'm fallible, I'm subject to temptation. It doesn't really come from that place. And I think that if you look at the descriptions of how Billy Graham described it, that would have been Billy Graham's description as well, that there's no question Billy Graham was going to be faithful to his wife, but that he didn't want to create, as someone in such a prominent position, any possibility of impressions being formed or misperceptions or rumors being spread. I honestly think that this is going to serve Pence well in the long run. 
your book really sort of formally ends with Pence taking the oath of office. You have a brief epilogue that has some tentative thoughts about his vice presidency so far. I'd like to read you something else and get your reaction. This is from a profile of Pence that was uh, published last year in the Atlantic magazine. And I've always thought this was very evocative, and I'm just wondering how it strikes you. The author describes a scene where Pence returns to Indiana shortly after becoming Donald Trump's vice president. I'm going to read, Pence takes the stage and greets the crowd with a booming, hello, Indiana. He says he has just hung up with Donald Trump and that the president asked him to say hello. He delivers this message with a slight chuckle that has a certain almost subversive quality to it. Watch Pence give enough speeches, and you'll notice this often happens when he's in front of a friendly crowd. He'll be witnessing to evangelicals at a megachurch or addressing conservative supporters at a rally. And when the moment comes for him to pass along the president's well wishes, the words are invariably accompanied by an amused little chuckle. It's almost as if in that brief, barely perceptible moment, Pence is sending a message to those with ears to hear that he recognizes the absurdity of his situation, that he knows just what sort of man he's working for, that while things may look bad now, there's a grand purpose at work here, a plan that will manifest itself in due time. Let not your hearts be troubled, he seems to be saying. I've got this. So with that passage in mind, I'd like to ask you two questions. First, how do you make sense of this odd couple pairing of Donald Trump and Mike Pence? And second, do you think that Mike Pence believes in some sense that God has a plan for him? Uh, No doubt. I think that evangelical Christians to a person would say that God has a plan for us. And no question that's the case. Some see hypocrisy that someone of Pence's conservative evangelical bent would align himself with someone who's so clearly coarse and vulgar and narcissistic. But I think Pence does see himself as sort of the cushion. We all were talking not that long ago about the anonymous letter from Mm -hmm. the insider in the administration saying that we are protecting you nation from Donald Uh, Trump. Actually, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, could you ever imagine the possibility that Pence would have been the author of something like that? no way was he the author of it, but in his own way, that's the role Pence is playing. Pence views himself as a responsible, thoughtful, prayerful adult in the room. And I believe he, in his own way, is influencing Donald Trump on many decisions. I mean, Supreme Court nominees would be one example, but certainly policy towards Israel and opening the embassy in Jerusalem. I think Pence views his role as extremely valuable because he is so different from Donald Trump. Just his mere presence in the White House offers some reassurance that one might not otherwise have. So, yes, I'm sure he thinks that, that he's there for a reason. God has a plan for him. And every day, I'm sure he prays for the country and for Donald Trump. And, um, you know, I I sort of joked that Mike Pence brought a basket of desirables to the campaign and to the White House. And I think what we see is two very, very different men who know their complete opposites and who see something in each other that they admire. And I think Donald Trump is absolutely flummoxed by this Mike Pence man who has a a pretty spotless history and who 
praise and doesn't seem to have any bad habits and who really doesn't have a lot of money to his name. But likewise, I think Pence sees something admirable in Donald Trump, and that is this uh, no-holds-barred, I'm going to do things differently, I'm going to shake it up and change the system. And I think Pence genuinely admires some aspects of Donald Trump's presidential behavior. Do you credit any of the stories that have come out occasionally, most of them anonymously sourced, that say things like, you know, Pence is talking to donors and he's got a political operation going kind of behind the president's back because he's anticipating that he may need to step into that role or maybe he will do something to sort of help God's plan along a little bit and something that ends up pushing Trump aside and makes Pence president. You say he's taken a calculated approach to his career. Would he be that calculated? First off, I don't think it's behind Donald Trump's back at all. I think that Pence has been charged with running the fundraising operation, presuming that there's a 2020 re-election campaign for the both of them. Donald Trump did not come to politics with any experience in this area. He was the art of the deal, and a lot of those deals, I think, were mm-hmm. were based on uh, uh, borrowing lots of money, mm-hmm. not having money in the bank. But so, the implication of these stories is Pence is raising the money for himself. Well, I think that's the fallback position, and there's no question that presidential ambition has been there for many, many years, and Pence himself pursued presidential possibilities at least twice in uh, 2012 and uh, I think 2006, if I'm recalling correctly. So the ambition is without question. I can't see Pence leading an uprising, but certainly Pence is quietly making sure he's prepared should anything happen that would require him to take Donald Trump's place. This is Profiles. I'm Steve Sanders. We're talking with Andrea Neal, a teacher, a former journalist, and the author of a brand new biography of Vice President Mike Pence called Pence, The Path to Power. We've spent most of this hour talking about Mike Pence. I want to talk a little bit about you and your own background. You're a native of Indiana. You graduated from Brown University. You spent time as a reporter in Washington with the Wire Service, United Press International, covering the U.S. Supreme Court. You then served as editor of the editorial page of the Indianapolis Star back when it was locally owned by the Pulliam family. And after 22 years as a journalist, in 2003, you became a teacher. You currently teach sixth grade English and eighth grade history at St. Richard's in Indianapolis. Why did you leave journalism to become a teacher? I think that I I made a mistake when I left being a reporter and went into management. And I discovered that I was not cut out for managing as editorial page editor, and I didn't like doing things like performance reviews. So I went through a discernment process and filled out lots of forms to figure out what might be my next career, and teaching popped out the back end of that process and uh, woke up one Sunday morning reading the Indie Star when they still ran classified ads, and it said, uh, history teacher, St. Richard's School, and I joked to myself that I would send in my resume, and I knew I would never hear another word. Since I had only taught Sunday school, I had zero teaching experience, and I'll be darned, I, I got called in and I got hired, and it's been a joy ever since. You say on your biography on the St. Richard's website that you believe both journalism and teaching provide a refreshing blank slate of possibilities every day. 
Say something more about that. That does sound nice, doesn't it? Well, as a journalist, you cannot avoid an occasional error. And I remember those days when I got a call because there was a mistake in the story. And I tell you, that could ruin a week. And I quickly learned that you have to wake up in the morning and know you're starting fresh because the job of a journalist is so important in our society. And even though there are fewer journalists and fewer newspapers, nobody else is watchdogging government and checking to make sure that our government officials are not corrupt. And so every day you've just got to have that jump out of bed mood and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to you know save the world. And that's what you're doing with these young people. The next mm-hmm. generation gets mocked a lot because they're always on their cell phones, but boy, they've got great minds and they're going to be the leaders very soon. And so they need to have the content knowledge about their government, their constitution. They need to know how to communicate, how to write. They need to quit making pronoun errors so they can go out there and lead and I think do a better job maybe in conducting civil discourse than we're doing right now. So that's what these young kids are and they're very forgiving. If I uh, give them a, a C one day and they get a little mad at me and by the next time they get a B or an A, they realize what they've learned and the delight on their face when that light bulb goes off. It's just, it's just a prize moment and it is a lot like journalism in that sense. When you see your students uh, and they're exposed to some of the same things we are, they have social media, they know what's happening in the news. Do you more often find reason to be worried or upset or reason to be optimistic when you see the events of our day being filtered through their eyes? Well, I'm worried because they are fully aware that if you go into government or politics, that you lose all privacy, and they're fully aware that they already have a uh, metaphorical paper trail because they're all on social media and they all have cell phones. And so I don't want any of them thinking that politics is going to be a career that they can't pursue because it's become so difficult to be involved in politics. But they love discussing issues. Last year, after the Parkland shooting, we had a Second Amendment debate, and I made them argue both sides of of. The, the proposition was resolved that the Second Amendment should be abolished. Mm-hmm. And I asked them, what position do you have on that? I was tricking them. And as soon as they said, hi, I want to get rid of the Second Amendment. And I said, well, you're going to argue to keep it then. And they moan and groan. But then they understand that once you've done the research and you understand the history behind it, Whatever position you take, your argument is going to be so much more effective. And that's not what society is doing now. They see the adults engaging in the most hideous, vulgar discourse. And I think they want to do better. Andrea Neal, it's been great talking with you about your work on Profiles. And may you have the best of luck with the book. And maybe you'll learn even that Mike Pence has read it. Well, my former student works for him and delivered the book to him. And so I'm under the strong impression that he has read it. I just don't know if he liked it. You've heard back from your student that he... Uh, No, I got a letter from the vice president. But he was uh, diplomatically neutral about about whether he liked it or not. I'm sure he found much in it to like and to admire. Thanks for talking with us today on Profiles. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. 
Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.